0: chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4. As you're turning in God's Word, again, let's pause and pray and ask God to give us wisdom as we walk through this passage. So only Father, as we come again, with hearts that are full of gratitude towards you and you alone. Thank you for the opportunity that we will have right now to dive into your word. May it be a shining light into our hearts and our minds to remind us of where we need to be, what we need to be thinking about, what we need to be pondering, and what is the most important thing in front of us. Help us now. We desperately need it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, before we dive into the book of Hebrews, I'm going to give you just a short intro into what the book of Hebrews is all about. So it gives us an understanding of when the author of Hebrews starts to say things, why he says it, what he says, and all the other things that are going on there. Uh, we do not, as a, as a church, and we're talking church as a whole, there is a debate uh, on who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, Many people say Paul wrote it. Um, I'm not in that camp. I'm not going to tell you who I think wrote it. That's another argument for another day. I always like to leave these things hanging so you can just ask me some other day. I I don't follow the Pauline uh, argument for that, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews had a phenomenal understanding of the Jewish world, the Levitical system, and everything else that was needed to bring us to why Jesus was the Son of God and everything else. But If you want to summarize the book of Hebrews, it can be summarized with this phrase, Jesus is better than. All right, And so you're going to get one thing after another brought up. And so as you just flow through this, angels back in the Old Testament, even today, were messengers from God. And so when an angel showed up, that was big time stuff. But you're going to see it right at the beginning, Jesus is far better than the angels. Then as you follow through the Old Testament, there's going to be some major figures in the Old Testament. People that the Israelite people would look at and go, these people are pretty special. One of them being Moses. Moses was the one who led them out out of Egypt, was the one that God gave the law to, literally saw the backward glance of the glory of God and all of these other things. And the writer of Hebrews is going to say, you think Moses was great? Jesus is far better. Then we're going to talk about Aaron in the book of Hebrews, you think Aaron, Aaron was the high priest, the first one to be consecrated, to go before literally this mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, to be able to go in and bear the sins of the people for that time period through spilt blood that was there, and the writer of Hebrews says, you thought Aaron was great, Jesus is far better. And it's going to be Jesus is far better, 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 you get to Hebrews Twelve And where everyone's focused on Him and Him alone, Jesus, all these are witnessing to that Jesus is better than. And so when we have the concept that Jesus is better than, we're going to start now in verse 1 here of Hebrews and dive into this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Through Him, He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand on the majesty of high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. All right, there's enough there, by the way. If we were preaching through Hebrews, we'd probably be in Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-4, probably... Several months just to break down everything that he just said there. I love when certain books of the Bible, many of them will go from the smaller argument to the greater and end with the great crescendo at the end. All right, The writer of Hebrews starts off by shooting a cannon right in your face saying, this is who Jesus is, and then does not let up the whole rest of the book. All right? He's one of those guys that wakes up in the morning ready to go and does not shut it off all day long. And so when we're thinking about this, Verses 1 and 2 are some powerful statements. So let's start off in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So let's pause there for a second. A prophet was someone who brought a message from God. They would hear a message from God, and they would bring it to the people. And now if you were a prophet, you would hear from God in many ways. Sometimes it was in in a vision. Sometimes it literally was the Word of God being brought to you, and you would communicate that to the people. Now, since God is truth and literally what he says is true, if you were a prophet and you said God said this and you were wrong, you would be stoned because it was clear that you were a false prophet. Because if a prophecy did not come about, it was clear it did not come from God because God does not lie and cannot lie. So that is why prophets at that day and age, this was not something you went, oh, this is exciting. I get to be a prophet. Because you wanted to make sure that you were literally the mouthpiece of the God was speaking to his people through them. Now, notice what happens. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Point number one that we're going to look at today is that God speaks through His Son. In this one fell swoop of the Son becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the prophecy of the prophet of old was no longer needed at all. They were done away with. Why? Because God is speaking, and He's speaking directly to us through His Son. That is why, church, I would I would be very, very, very careful. When you see all across this when I'm going to use, quote, Christians saying things like, I have a new word from the Lord or I have a new revelation from the Lord. That's a major problem because Hebrews tells us in one fell swoop, you want to have any revelation from the Lord, open the word of God. I mean, there's a great, almost ironic uh, um, thing that is kicked around in Christian circles where they say, you know, if you want to hear what the Lord has to say, read the word of God. You want to hear his audible voice, read it out loud. All right, you go to the Word. You don't need to be looking for anything else. And so when anybody comes up, this is why the running joke we always like to say, if anybody puts new in front of theology, run. Run as fast as you can, because there is nothing new under the sun. And now in these last days, He is speaking to us directly from the Word. And who is that Word? His Son. So here is what we have in front of us. When we think of this, there's just so much more to dive into. This is why you could literally do multiple sermons because He's speaking to us from His Son, which is Jesus Himself. So here's what we have to deal with. In the Old Testament, there were three offices. There was king, there was prophet, and there was priest. And each each one of these offices was very important. A king would be someone who rules over you. all right? And then the prophet, we already talked about them, that was one who took the message from God, brought it to the people, and the priest was the one who took... The people's issues and brought them before God. And so what we see here in Jesus, he fulfilled all three of these offices. He was king, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. The inheritance, he has a king. We will see that he was the perfect prophet because literally he is the word of God right in front of us. We no longer need to look to a prophet, but look to Jesus and Jesus alone. And he is the perfect priest. The go-between between us and God. He is that perfect priest, better than Aaron, better than anything else. And we'll dive into Hebrews, as Hebrews tells us as well. So when we think through all of these priestly offices, all of these things that are going on, we will see, even in the Bible, these are things to keep right in front of you. Because there were times that a king tried to be a priest, and he broke out in leprosy. There was times where kings tried to be prophets, and they no, no, and he said, no, only Christ can fulfill that. This is why the most glorious thing, as John 1 is going to tell us, and we'll dive into that even more, that the Word became flesh. The Word, which literally was the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we're celebrating today. This is no small thing. Because what we're going to see here, now Jesus is, now God is speaking directly to us through His Son. But point number two is, all the things about His Son we're about ready to understand. Notice... This in verse two here. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he, meaning God the Father, appointed heir of all things. God the Father appointed his son heir of all things. Point number two, Christ is the end of all things, or another way of saying it is the heir of all things. Christ is the end of all things. If you are the heir of all things, that means all things are yours, and that means you would be the end. We're going to find out that He's the end, the middle, and the beginning today, but we're going to see here that He is the heir of all things. All things are coming to Him and to Him alone. I want to show you how we see this and why He is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things because of His death on the cross. What you should see behind the manger, which I wasn't going to rearrange it because all the hay, literally, we should put the manger right here. So you see the manger, you see the cross because this is what he came to do. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. And I just, there is so much in this passage here, Revelation chapter 5, where we see that John, on the island of Patmos, if you want to say it, the world has been rolled back, almost like a scroll, and he gets to see into the heavenly realm. And in Revelation 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 14. And I want to take some time and look through this as we talk about why Jesus is the heir of all things. Verse 1 of Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within it, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice "Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Now, real quick here. An angel is standing there. Notice the type of angel. A massively strong angel. And what is he looking for? Someone who is worthy to break open the the seals. Notice, he's strong enough. He's a strong angel. What could he do? But he's not worthy to break open the seals. They're looking. The call goes out with a loud voice, almost a shout. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What well, we see here again, an angel barking out, who's worthy to do this? And they look over up hill and dale all over the place to find someone worthy to do it. And they can't find anyone all over the earth to find it. And John here starts to weep. What What's going on here? Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, it says this idea that like, look and see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, in your mind, you're thinking you're going to see this roaring lion come charging in almost like Aslan-esque, into this thing, roaring, you know, with just a loud roar, and everything's going to go away. The irony of it continues. And behold, the throne and four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Remember we looked, Genesis 3.15 should be ringing in your ears. Remember that wounded victor. And what do we see here? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out all over the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twelve elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And here's what they sang. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people. For God, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and people, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and around the throne, and every living creature, and every elder, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads, and thousands upon thousands, with a loud voice, worthy as the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, And in the sea, and notice this phrase, and all that is in them. This is like you have nothing left to do, like you're shouting at the top of your lungs, probably in a more melodious thing than just shouting. You, from the gut of your gut, this praise is being proclaimed. To him who sits on the throne and to the be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, or so let it be. And they fell down and worshipped. He is the heir of all things. Why? Because he was slain, and by his blood he has ransomed a people for God out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That is why he is the heir of all things. Well, let's go back to Hebrews. Why don't we stop at verse 9 when you're on your way back? Go to sorry, Hebrews chapter 9 is where we're going to be. You can instead of going all the way back, but go to Hebrews 9. So when we think about this lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, this lamb that was slain that all heaven is breaking forth in praise and adoration to God, as we think through this for a moment, we say, well, why did this happen? Did it have to happen? Is it necessary for this to happen? Why 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 this? Why is this the way God had it? Hebrews 9:22 Here's what the author says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The reason why he is the heir of all things is because he laid down his life to bring a people of God in from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And why was it the shedding of blood? Because God had determined that the, the, literally the way sins would be forgiven is through the shedding of blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In Luke 9, when Jesus is standing there talking to His disciples, He looks at them and He says, I must go to Jerusalem because the Son of Man must be crucified. And He must raise from the dead. There's an underlining must there. Because this is what needs to take place for salvation to take place. The atonement of Christ was necessary. It was also sufficient. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Why Christ is the end of all things? Because the atoning sacrifice was necessary. Why is he the end of all things? Because it was sufficient for what it was sent to do. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be in verses 11 through 14. Speaking about how Jesus is the better priest, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. When the priest would stand off for sacrifices, I'm ad-libbing right now in verse 11. When they would stand there and they would offer sacrifices, they'd be offering sacrifices that, if you want to call it, momentarily covered sin, but that was all pointing to one great sacrifice, one great sacrifice alone. They stood there daily, but now look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. Notice this, the complete Sufficient sacrifice. It was one sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This single offering that was done on the cross was sufficient. It was necessary, and because of all of this, he is the heir of all things, as Hebrews 1 reminds us. Not only is He the heir of all things, point number three here, we will see that He is the beginning of all things. He is the heir of all things, as verse 2 says, through Him also He created the world. Christ is the beginning of all things, the creator of all things, and if He is the one whom the world was created now, that also means He is the eternal God. Turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John 1, verses 1 through 4. 14, by the way, we will be in. John 1, 1 through 14. The author of Hebrews is picking up where John... Also wrote here as well, John 1, 1 1-14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness was not... Uh, could not overcome it again. These are when we read these things. You should be thinking about Isaiah 9:2 that we read about. Remember when the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it at all. These other things that we're going through, all things are made through Him. Immediately, our minds should go back to Genesis in these ways. There was a man, verse six, sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that He, that we might believe through Him. He was not the light; became. Bearing witness about the light, the true light that enlightens everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see that Jesus literally was the one whom all things were created. That's why verse 3, back in Hebrews 1, reminds us He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, because Jesus is God. This is where we see that beautiful trinity, that we see that before the world began, the trinity was as they've always been and ever will be in complete harmony with one another. And that light of Jesus was sent into the world at the fullness of time to bring light into darkness, to shine forth. So He is, as we say, at the end of all things, He is the beginning of all things. That everything that came after Him all came from Him because He is the beginning and the end, which by nature would say He is also then what? The middle of all things. And look what Hebrews tells us here. And this is where we're going to park for a little bit. Hebrews 1, 3 here. And he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The exact imprint of God. He, Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Notice, even the way that's done, the word of his power. It's not as if His arm is out there holding it up. Literally, His Word holds the universe together. Nothing happens in this universe that is a mistake. There is no rogue molecule in this world. There is nothing coming this next year into your life that God does not know, God does not have control over. Now you sit here and you say, but wait a minute, there's a lot of suffering in this room. I mean, it's interesting. One of the things, one of the joys that I enjoy doing is when we stand around and we sing Silent Night on Christmas Eve and I watch the faces that are singing it. And I think about each person in the year that you had. I think about the people that sadly may not be here next year when we sing that. And I think through all of those things as your pastor, just thinking about each one of you. I'll let you decide if I think good thoughts or bad thoughts. But I think about each one of you. And as I'm thinking about each one of you, in my mind I just go... You know what? No one knows the future, but one does, God Himself. And I will fail you, you will fail me, we'll both fail each other together, but He won't. He will be faithful like He was last year, as He will be this year. And because He is the beginning of all things, because He's the end of all things, and because He holds things all by His power, what does that do when we go before Him in prayer? I want you to turn real quick to Luke 11. I'm going to take a little side journey here in Luke 11 and talk about if all of these things are true of what the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews eleven eleven through 13. Luke eleven eleven through 13. Let's start in verse 10 to get a little context. For whoever, for everyone who asks receives, and one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. That verse has been horribly taken out of context because that's the name of it. The name it and claim it people love that verse. But they forget that that's in context with a lot of the rest of the context. Verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will. Instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, real quick, here's what everybody thinks. Because this is what we have been taught that this text says, but the text does not say that. Because here's what seems to be, sadly, by the the abusers of this text, what has been said. So here's what they say. In the, in the rhetorical question of verse 11, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? The answer then is what, is, what does the son get? And everybody says, a fish. All right. Well, the text does not say he gets a fish. What does the text say? He won't get a serpent. All right. Continue reading. Or, if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? What is implied, sadly, that he gets a what? An egg. The text just tells us he doesn't get... A scorpion. Because here's what happens. A good father and a loving father knows what is best for his kids. Do the kids always know what is best? No. Not even close. So many times kids ask for things that is not good for them to get at all. It'd be like if your two-year-old asked for a sold-off shotgun for Christmas. All right? You would sit there and say, I, probably not this year. We'll wait until you're 3, all right? You know. And when we think through this, what instead of running to it and everybody going, "Well, we get the egg, we get the fish, we get all this," what we see here is will you get what God knew you needed. He's not going to give you something that will bring ultimate destruction on you. He will give you what is good. And so this text what it's teaching us is many times we will ask for something we think we need, We think this is what we have, but what we see in this text teaching is saying God will not give you what will destroy you. He'll give you what you need, even if you ask for something in, I would even call it maybe even an error. There is a a short poem, I guess it would be, or a quote. Now, I looked up this quote because I heard someone say it one time, and so I looked up. This quote, and this quote has been quoted by so many people, I don't even know who to give credit for. I found it from, I mean, multiple people, all the way down to an anonymous and then down to an unknown Confederate soldier. All right, so like, so I changed some words in it, and I'll just pretend it's mine then. If everybody else is claiming it, um, I'll just say it. But I heard someone say this first, and it was just about how they need to view the world when they understand that no good thing God will withhold from us, but we don't define good. All right, here's what it said. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given sickness that I might do better things. When I say that, I'm, I'm pausing here in this. I think of all the people that have looked at me through tears, and say, one day, when I get to heaven, no more pricking my fingers to check my sugar. I can't wait, as a paraplegic told me one day, to just run into Jesus' arms. That's all I care about. And, he, and this guy would say, I've read story after story of these guys that have fallen out of the same tree stands that I fell out of, and they didn't break their back and didn't become a paraplegic, but I did. Why me? And the only answer is right here in front of us. Same things with my mom. Same thing with my daughter. You know, like we pray for our kids that they would know God better. And I would go, can we do it a different way than giving her these things to carry? I'm going to start back at the beginning just in case if you weren't paying attention. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might h- learn to humbly obey. I asked for wealth that I might do great things. I was given sickness, that I might do better things. I asked for riches, that I might be happy. I was given poverty, that I might be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the praise of man. I was given weakness, that I might understand the need of God. I asked for all these things, that I might enjoy life. I was given life, that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among men most richly blessed. That in and of itself, we should probably read every single day. Because so many times we say, all right, this next year, here are the things I want to learn, and what do we say to God, and here's how it's going to be done, right? Like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, and what does the Lord look at us and say, you do not even know what tomorrow holds. And so many times in our own lives, we can look at the world around us, and we say, we want to have a happy new year, right? We want to have all of this, but how are we going to find happy? Do we allow the Lord and His Word to tell us that even though everything can be stripped away from you, your joy is found in Him and Him alone? That's a heart and a mind that is understanding that He is the beginning of all things, He is the middle of all things, and He is the end of of all things, that when we get to heaven one day, we will join like they did in Revelation 5 there, and all of these heartaches, all of these sorrows, all of these other things will compare nothing to the praise and adoration of God and Him and Him alone. We long for that day. But all these troubles and all these trials that God's bringing into our lives are only what they're doing is preparing us for that incredible weight of glory that one day we will stand and see Him face to face. So when we turn and we think of this Christmas day, we see the baby in the manger and we see, it's almost like a cute, cuddly picture, but we forget within hours of this baby being born, Herod's out to kill it. Within hours of the streets of Bethlehem, hearing the Messiah has been born, there's going to hear a cry of Rebekah crying for her kids as Bethlehem is slaughtered. The kids are slaughtered in those days leading up after that to the point where Jesus is on the run then down to Egypt and we see this mass murder that takes place and then Jesus coming back here and starting his time as a 12-year-old and on in his time here in Nazareth and in Bethlehem under Roman rule, knowing that this deliverer that was going to come was going to suffer and die. But we all cry, I mean all of us, I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. We all cry for a deliverer that's going to lead us, right, into truth and godliness. We cry for that. The Israelite people were crying for a deliverer. Overthrow Rome and deliver us. But the cry for the deliverer, they had so missed it. Because when Jesus came, it was not the deliverer that they wanted. It was actually the deliver that they needed. Many times we cry for deliverance, but it's a deliverance of our own selfish pride and everything else that's wrapped up in there. When Jesus comes in, he says, I'm coming in for keeps. So as we look at this babe in the manger, we see the deliverer who will come. And he will deliver us from our greatest need. Our need for, of our rebellious heart. A need that we could never, ever, ever solve on our own. He came that we may have life. So when we pause and we reflect here. I want you to remember this Christmas. Here's what I picture you guys doing. So we can just pretend like this will happen. When all the gifts have been opened, which you should be opening them today, not last night. And you're sitting around by the tree. And you know, the, 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 the one person in the family is walking around picking up all the, the trash, right? And then they're debating, do we go burn the trash now? So did someone throw away a receipt that we shouldn't have? You know, that whole thing when you're about ready to throw it out, right? When that's all going on, you're sitting down in your chair, and the lights of the Christmas tree are still there, and the darkness is settling in for the evening. I want you to pause and reflect about the supremacy of Jesus above all things. And just say, Lord... I'll never truly be able to grasp this, but help me this next year to have my heart and my mind focused on you and you alone. So all of these little things that we may think we need mean nothing compared to our only need, which is you and you alone, because there's going to be, I can guarantee you, you will have trouble. You will have hardships. All right. We know that. We live in a world where these things are going to happen. There will be broken relationship. There will be sickness. There will be illness that is only just under the surface, ready to reveal itself. But all of these things God is giving us together as a family to walk alongside with one another through these things, focusing on Christ and Christ alone, not our circumstances. Because our circumstances are just but a mere glimpse, a mere mist, as James tells us, that are causing us to look to Him and Him alone. And so, maybe, which I'm not going to go through and read that all, we should pray, Lord, make us weak that we may be strong. You know, Lord, make us sick that we may truly be healthy. And you could just go all the way through because this is what God gives us. And so, as a church body, I'd like to say from the depth of my heart I love you guys. I love shepherding you guys, you're a joy to shepherd. I always like to say, some more than others, you know, but I'll let you decide always that, but you're a joy to shepherd because we get to do this together. The reason why it's a joy to shepherd, because there are so many times where I'm trying to get a hold of somebody, but you guys have already beat me to that, and you're loving one another, and you're caring for one another. Yeah, we're not perfect, because that's what makes us great, all right? We know we've got our issues, we know we got our problems, but we know we have a Savior who is right, who is perfect, and that's what we point each other to. So I'm going to pray, and before we pray, I just want to give you a little teaser. We will be back in 1 Peter next week. I know you're probably all anxious. Of We haven't been there in a while, but I did go through the church calendar. March 5th, we will be starting the book of Genesis, so um, maybe something for you to look forward to. We will, and by the way, we've only been in 1 Peter a little bit over a year, so some of you think that we haven't been out there. We have nothing. I don't know how long we're going to be in Genesis, but I'm excited to do that along with you guys as we begin this journey. So let's pray and then sing and and then get out of here and enjoy our Christmas day together. Dearly Father, we stand amazed that you would bring a group of people like this together. This flock that is all over the place from Stratford to Spencer to up in Medford to all over the MAP here in central Wisconsin, thank you for each one that is here. And by your grace, help us to stand, not pointing to ourselves, not pointing to anything that, that we may have thought we have done, but pointing to you and you alone. You are better than anything. May that be the cry of our hearts this next year. May it be the cry that is heard when we are struggling When we are saying goodbye to loved ones, when we are wrestling through hurt relationships, may we look to you and you alone. Because only from you comes our help. Help us now. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.